chapter 21. In this section, John sees the coming of Yahweh, the Lamb and the kingdom of heaven, down to earth to dwell permanently with humanity. This is the conclusion of all the prophecies of the Bible and is the full restoration of the Garden of Eden. The reality of marriage, the reality of the marriage of heaven and earth is so awesome and indescribable that John stretches human vocabulary to its limits to convey the truths that are spiritual and everlasting. There's no, this picture is so cool, but it still does not do justice to probably what is really going to truly happen. This is chapters 21 and 22, and, and basically what you have here is that this is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. And I told you the four most important chapters, in my opinion, in Revelation are chapters 4 and 5, the enthronement of God in the Lamb, and 21 and 22, the coming of the Lamb and God to earth. And this is everything that we're looking forward to. We're not looking forward to going to heaven. Well, we shouldn't be. I'm not saying it's not a good place, but you're just going to suffer in a different way. You're not going to have your body, and not all of you is going to be in the presence of God. Yes, you're going to be in the presence of God, but not all of you. There's going to be a disembodiment. This, this is what we're looking forward to. The glorification of the bodies and the marriage of heaven and earth. It is the Garden of Eden restored. And in J.R.R. Tolkien's words of The Hobbit, it's there and back again. And we're not exactly the same as what we were when we left, but what we're coming back to is still home. It's still home. This is our true home. And it's not in heaven, it's on earth. It's the house that you live in. It's your home. This is our home, this planet. This is your house. You live in it. It is your living room. It is your life. It is where, it's where you watched your children grow up. It's where you hung out with your brothers and sisters. It's where you went on vacation. It's where you got baptized. It's where you accepted Christ. It's, there's all these great memories in this house. And if you're going to mourn and cry when your house burns down to the ground and lose that, then how much more for this earth that was given to us? And even when your house burns down, you're still on earth with your memories. This is the world that your memories have been in. This is where you led people to Christ. This is where you came to Christ. This is where you, you learned to grow with God. This is where you came to Christ. And this is the world that God values. But people have broken into your house and messed it up. People have vandalized it. You've probably done some vandalization. Okay, there are some bad memories here. The carpet got ripped up and destroyed by somebody in your family, so to speak. We've done things to this world, our home. And so it is our home. It's a place where we feel comfortable. We don't want to leave it. There's a part of us like, yay, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. But at the same time, I like being here. It's comfortable. It's all that I've ever known. Going to heaven is kind of a little scary if you're truly honest with yourself, right? I've never been there. I don't know what it's like. I'm going to leave this behind. And so what God is doing, he's not coming and taking you away from it. He's not coming to nuke it and replace it with a new one. He's coming and he's going to repair it. He's going to repair it. And I really, truly believe this. Our goal is not to go home one day. Our goal is for Christ to come to our home and help us make all things right. Make all things right. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth has ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And you're like, there you go, Corey. It just said it's all gone. 
I don't actually believe that. One, if heaven is now gone, then where in the world does the kingdom of God come from in, the next, in this chapter? Heaven's gone. But yet then we're told the kingdom of God came down from heaven. That doesn't make sense. But here's the real thing. There are two Greek words for new. There is neos and kainos. Kainos. Neos means fresh, brand new, an original idea, or a brand new human, a brand new baby, or a brand new car that you just created, or something like that. It means fresh and new, is just come into existence. It's usually used of a new batch of something, like a new batch of bread or a new batch of wine. You can see this in Matthew 9, 17, 1 Corinthians 5. It's used of young people, Luke 15 and 1 Timothy. But kainos, which is used here, this is the word that is used here of a new earth and a new heaven, carries the idea of renewed, restored, like getting an old, rusted out, broken down 57 Chevy and renewing it. And then you get all done restoring. You're like, it's new. And your grandson's like, no, it's not. But that's not how you're using the word new. And that's how this word is being used. It's unknown newness or an improved, a sense of a new quality that has been added to it. Uh, the altering of the original nature is frequently used as something that is superior to the old, like a brand new humanity. Like when God says the new law, the new covenant. Now the new covenant is not completely different. It's the Mosaic covenant just repackaged. But it has a newness to it, a, a, a different element that has been added to it, a uniqueness, and that is Christ. And here's why I really truly believe that it does not mean brand new because the old one was nuked. The church is said to be a new kainos humanity in Ephesians chapter 2.15. Did God nuke us and destroy us all and create a brand new us to replace them? Like some cloned imposters? No. When Paul says that you are a new humanity, he's not saying the old humanity that we were was completely destroyed and, I, and God formed a new one out of the clay. And you're like... John 2.0. Okay, and we rewrote all the code. In fact, it was so crap, we just deleted it all. Paul says that we are in Christ a new creation, for the old has gone, and the new is here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, using the word kainos. When you became a Christian, did God destroy you and then create a new you? And says, now you're a brand shiny Christian. Brand new, shiny Christian. No. What he means is that there's a diff, something different. The Holy Spirit. You've given your life over. And now you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not into something completely different, but what God intended you to be, but still you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 24 and Colossians 3, that we are to put on the new self, kainos, and remove the old self. Does it mean that you take off your body and destroy it and then go to the store and buy a brand new body and put it on? No. Every single time we see this word used of a new humanity in Christ, a new creation, and put on the new self is always used of this thing that we already have being transformed and renewed and restored. It's being restored. 
And in the same way that is being used here, if this is what he does with us, then why would he do anything different with creation? If he created the Garden of Eden and us to be together in it, and that was his original plan, and we messed up with sin, and then he sends Jesus on the cross, Christ on the cross to give you a new humanity, a new nature, a new creation, and that did not involve nuking it and burning it and destroying it and getting something brand new and shiny and different, then when he restores creation, it's going to be the same thing that he's doing with us. That's how he's consistently used it throughout the Bible. And I think not only does the grammatical word that is being used here make that point, but also the way that the word is being used of us throughout Paul's writings. And it also fits the character of God. God is not like, well, tried it with the Garden of Eden, so let's just nuke it and destroy it, and let's start all over again. Even with the Bionic Man, they still stayed with the original stuff somehow. We can build it bigger and stronger, but they still stuck with him. Okay, even Robocop. Here's the thing. I think the idea is that this is going to be renewed. Thus, the idea is that sky and land will remain, but it's going to be transformed and renewed like we are transformed and renewed. God is going to save his creation, not destroy it and build a new one. And in fact, that gives God more glory. Are you more impressed by a man or a woman that throws the old piece of artwork out because it's damaged and builds a new one, or one who can take the original and restore it and make it look like it's new? I'm not going to rest my entire argument on that idea, but I think that gives God even more glory. It gives God even more glory. So ultimately, I believe that love is restoration and restoration redemption and not replacement. I think love is restoration and redemption and not replacement. And I think that's the idea that's being communicated in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he wanted to redeem creation and humanity, not replace them. So there will be no more sea. So the other idea with the sea is I don't really think that God's going to get rid of 75% of the creation and just do away with it. I think the idea is that there will be no more chaos. All throughout the Bible, the sea is always representing chaos, and it's always been there in every book of the Bible. And now for the first time, God says, there's no more sea. There's no more chaos. I saw a new holy city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. Notice that he mentions the former things, not the world, the things of the world, death, crying, weeping, mourning, suffering, that kind of idea. idea. So now he sees the new Jerusalem. Now the idea here is not that it's a city, because we're told that it's the bride as well. So the point is not that this is a city coming down out of heaven, but this is the believers coming down out of heaven. And they're coming down to dwell on earth. Like I said, you may go to heaven when you die, but ultimate destination is to come back to earth. There and back again. 
just as heaven and earth merged together in the Garden of Eden, now they're going to be merged back together again. This is all the promises of God coming to fulfillment. This is important. The most important thing of all this is that it says that God came down and he dwelt with them. Now, God originally was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But we lost that intimate face-to-face walking with him. Then he kind of gave us an idea of him being with us when he came down in the Shekinah glory of God. The Hebrew word Shekinah literally means dwelling, the dwelling glory of God. And unlike the pagan gods, he actually came down off the mountain, out of heaven, and he dwelt on the earth right there with them. But they were not able to get into the full presence of God because of their sin. Then when we get to the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God came down in the tabernacle, and the word tabernacle here is miskon, and miskon means dwelling. Two words for dwelling, Shekinah and miskon. And so not only do you have the Shekinah glory of God being the dwelling of God, but then it comes down the tabernacle, which is the dwelling of God. And, and God is dwelling with them, but they can only experience so much. Then we get to John. John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, logos, means reason, thinking, understanding, wisdom. It also is the embodiment of the God idea. Um, Our pastor just mentioned this on Sunday. Um, For them, God was a mind. It was a reason in the Greek thing. They didn't believe God had a body. It was not a he or a she. It It was a force. It was energy, but not a force energy like Hinduism, but a mind, thinking, logic, reason. And so when John uses the word logos of Christ, he's emphasizing that that's that kind of an idea, a being that has thought, a being that has intellect and reasoning. It's with God, and it is God. But then when he gets to verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Up to that point, everything that John has been saying about the law of us being reason and intellect and the ultimate understanding of God, and it's, it's, it's not personal, it's not embodied, but it is logical and rational. And then it's light, and all things came through it. And all the Greeks are like, amen, amen. And then John gets, and then it became flesh. And that's where they'd be like, what are you talking about, Willis? That's where they would leave him because the, the material realm was not good. The body was not good. They didn't necessarily think that it was evil and bad, but to be in it was not good. And the Greek way, the Platonic way of thinking, Plato. That's where John starts with what they have in common, but then he pushes it further into a new idea or a new understanding that goes beyond their bounds. But what's interesting is that once again you have God demonstrating his desire to dwell with him through his son. And when the, he, the Greek here, when it says, And the word became flesh, and it tabernacled among us. It uses it in the Greek, the word tabernacle. And what God is not only saying, In the beginning was me, and I tabernacled among you in the Shekinah glory of God. But now, the beginning was also the Word, and the Word was with me, and the Word is me, and the Word is now coming to tabernacle with you. But it's actually going to put on flesh, and I never did that. And you're going to now have a more intimate encounter with me than you did with the Shekinah glory of God. And then that flesh is going to come along, 
And it's going to die for you to open up heaven even more. And then that flesh is going to tell you, pray like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That these two events, the Father in the First Testament and the Son in the Second, are foreshadowing of a more complete and ultimate embodiment of God and Jesus dwelling with us on earth. All throughout the Bible, humanity is always trying to get to heaven through their own works. The Tower of Babylon, Jacob on Jacob's ladder trying to get the presses, all throughout humanity. But God is always coming down, down in the garden, down to talk to Cain, down to talk to Abraham and eat with him, down to see what's wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah, down to see what's with the Tower of Babylon, down in the Shekinah glory, down in the tabernacle, down over and over again. Jesus, the Holy Spirit coming down in Acts chapter 2, and it's all pointing to the fact that ultimately he's going to come down and stay down. Do I see a difference between seeing God and then seeing Jesus? Or are they both? Yes. There's a difference because they're the Trinity, but there's not because they're the Trinity. So, but what is interesting here, to, if this answers your question better, it will distinctly make a distinction by saying God came and dwelt with them, and then it will also go on and say, and the Lamb came down and dwelt with us. And so there's an idea that there is a distinction here, that, that John wants you to know that it's not just God coming down in this fire, and it's not just Jesus coming down in the flesh, that they're both coming down now. And now God is coming down. It doesn't say, and the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt with them. It doesn't say that. It says God. And so I think the idea is that both of them are coming down. And it is their full embodiment. And by embodiment, I mean whatever that means. I don't mean God. I mean, Jesus has a body still. And he will for all eternity. But I'm not saying God has a body. The question is, what about the Holy Spirit? It's already been here. And so God was on earth in the Garden of Eden, and the Father, we got separated from him. And I think that would have been the whole Trinity too, but did Adam and Eve understand the Trinity? I don't know. That's all other thing. Jesus came down and left, and now he's come back. But in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I will send another, the paraclete, and he'll come along your side, and he'll dwell with you. And then he told the disciples, wait here and the kingdom of God will come down. And in Acts chapter 2, it came. So I think the idea is that the Holy Spirit has, is here, will be here, and never goes back up. And so there's no reason for him to come down. Very good question. An important question in the context. What he does is he wipes away every tear. Now, does that mean that you're still going to cry and mourn and he's just going to be there as a perfect counselor wiping it away? Or does it mean that he's going to wipe them away and then he goes on and says, but then no more will ever come? I don't know. I think the idea is that there will be no more suffering. Sin and death and all that stuff are gone, but suffering will be completely gone and there will be more and more to cry. Verse 5, And the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, Write it down, because these words are reliable and true. He also said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who is thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. And the one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But So he is repeating those lines from the letters to the churches. To the one who perseveres, I will make them victorious. I will be your God, and you will be my son. We heard that multiple times in the seven letters of the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. And now he's saying, everything I just told you back there in those letters, persevere despite the suffering. 
This is the moment that it all happens. This is what you're looking forward to. This is what you're persevering. He will give to all those who are thirsty. But to the cowards, the unbelievers, the detestable persons, murderers and sexual immoral, and those who practice magic spells, idol worshipers and all those who lie, their place will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. Now, at this point, we're specifically told that this is the second death, going to the lake of fire. The first death is dying physically, where everybody will be resurrected again. And the second death is going to the lake of fire. Those who are in Christ, we were told back in chapter 20, the second death has no power over us. But those who are unbelievers, they will go to the second death. Now, he lists all these things. I don't think God is saying, and there's a special place in hell for all you cowards. And as teachers might have said, liars go to hell. It says it right here in Revelation. That's not the point. The point is in the context of everything that God has already emphasized. The fact that it begins with cowards and ends with liars has this idea that there's not an escalation. But the idea is that cowards is pointing to those who did not maintain their faith despite the persecution. It's not that they were a coward and afraid to defend their brother when he was getting beaten up at school or that they ran away in war and left their friends behind or, or they're not brave enough to stand up to the boss and tell them what. The idea is that they did not persevere to the end. When persecution and suffering and trials came, they chucked the faith. They walked away from Christ. They did not have the courage to maintain their walk with Christ all the way to the end. The Bible makes it very, very clear over and over again that perseverance is the mark of the true believer. The one who keeps running the race to the end. That's the true believer. Thus, at the very end, the liar would be the one who does not maintain the truth. They said they would follow Christ, or they said this and they, they chose not to, or whatever. Or they, they, they're not faithful to Christ in any kind of way. So then in between that are these harsher words... And these words refer to idolatry, unbelievers, detestable persons. Detestable persons is used of people who worship idols all throughout the Bible. Murderers. The idea might be here that Satan is a murderer. And if you follow Satan long enough, you will eventually be a murderer yourself. You will murder people's emotions. You will murder their, their self-esteem. You will murder things. You might even in this time period and context, you're probably murdering your children in a child's sacrifice. Specifically for being an idolater. The sexually moral, we've already talked about this. This has to do with unfaithfulness to God, not specifically a physical sexual immorality. And those who practice magic, this is obviously idolatry, demonic behavior, witchcraft, spells, idol worshipers, all those who lie. The place will be the lake of fire. The idea is not that the lake of fire is for all these people who did these bad things. The idea is the lake of fire is for people who worshiped and followed the idols. And these are words that are used all throughout the Bible to refer to idol worshipers. Yes, there's liars, and that I didn't steal the candy bar, but I really did. But God has never, ever really been interested in that as the primary thing that determines whether you're walking with God or not. What he's always been interested in is who you're going to bow down to and who you're going to worship. And yes, all those sins 
are a violation of the Ten Commandments, and all those sins bring consequences, and all those sins bring death to relationships with God and other people, and all of them are ways that you're separated from God. But ultimately, when it comes down to the, what God really, truly cares about is not all those little sins, 